Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker tonight is the youngest of ten children from Kansas. Father Andrew Hoffer studied history, philosophy, and classics at Benedictine College. After continuing his studies in St. Andrews, Scotland, and earning a Master of Letters in Medieval History, Father Andrew entered the Order of Preachers and was ordained a priest. After finishing his STL and serving as an associate pastor for a brief time, he was sent to Kenya as a missionary for two years. He taught at Tangaza College of the Catholic University of Eastern Africa and other institutions in Nairobi. Returning to the U.S., Father Hoffer completed his Ph.D. in theology at the University of Notre Dame. His research has appeared in such journals as Nova et Vetera, Pro Ecclesia, The Thomist, Communio, and Angelicum. Father Andrew Hoffer currently resides at the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., where he teaches patristics and ancient languages. Please welcome Father Andrew Hoffer. Thank you very much. Oh, I, this is good. Thank you. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for your creation, and we rejoice that you have given us your grace. We ask you now to pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us, that we may have a greater understanding of the mystery of original sin and its victory in our Lord Jesus. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus, and we pray as he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed is you, our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. It is very good for me to be here with you now. <laughs> In the two hours of traffic uh, to uh, get here, I thought of an example of how to begin this evening's talk. Have you ever thought about how some things in the world are just not right? In fact, in fact, you have a sense that the world isn't just right. We're going to be talking about original sin. And this is how we come to understand something of the problems of the world. Now, what I want to stress at the beginning is that you are able to know that something isn't just right because you kind of have an experience of what is right. So in terms of me 
planning my trip to St. Timothy's here in Chantilly, I had on uh, word that it would take about 45 minutes. Okay? That's what I was told. I thought, well, I'll bring my books. I don't like to be late. I'll bring my books. I'll, I'll pray. I'll study. I'll get things nice and prepared so that way I can greet people, all these things. I knew that something was not right in the traffic, right? What if I had not known that it should take 45 minutes? It's really because I had the sense that it should take about 45 minutes, and then, oh, well, you know, a few extra minutes because of the traffic. Uh, it's because I had a standard that I was able to think back and, and look at the situation and say, oh, this is not right. This is not right at all. And then, particularly in terms of getting here, uh, rejoicing in my presence to be here, the goal, that I can appreciate what has happened and how I was brought to the goal, despite the various obstacles. Original sin isn't just something that affects Christians. It affects the whole world. The whole world. Everybody experiences something of original sin. But Christians can have a deeper understanding of the mystery of original sin because we come to know something about what is right. In fact, something about the one who is right, the righteous one, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only in the mystery of Christ that we come to understand how great it is that he has brought us uh, to the intention of our travel, of our pilgrimage. It's only in Christ that then we can see how horrible sin is. If you are just stuck in the sin, uh, you may just think that this is what is expected. Have you ever uh, talked with people who are so engrossed in their sinful lives that they don't understand that, actually, that's wrong. They, they just kind of think that, well, this is the way everybody does it. This is, this is it. As Christians, we come to appreciate the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then from that stance, in, in a sense, from that place that he puts us to look around and to give greater praise to God. But without that knowledge... In a sense, we would be continuing in a sort of blindness. All right, so my first point in order to introduce our topic this evening is about how we consider original sin from the stance of being with Jesus Christ. On your handout, uh, that first paragraph has a couple numbers from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it expresses it quite beautifully. The revelation of divine love in Christ manifested at the same time the extent of evil and the superabundance of grace. We must therefore approach the question of the origin of evil by fixing the eyes of our faith in him who alone is its conqueror. Let's think about it from another stance. Because we fix our eyes on him, then our focus is on Jesus. And he, then, is our reference point, our light, to be able to see where the darknesses are. When you think about sin, it's a mystery of iniquity. In a sense, if you look directly at sin without reference to God, you'll be sucked into the sin. So when there is something so horrible, 
that is, in a sense, crying out for your attention, it's possible to slip into the thing that is so horrible. This is why uh, we look at the horror of sin, and this evening original sin, by considering Jesus and the light that he sheds. The Catechism continues, Only in the knowledge of God's plan for man can we grasp that sin is an abuse of the freedom that God gives to created persons, so that they are capable of loving him and loving one another. We then receive a revelation as Christians of God's plan. God's plan so that we can see that we are meant to love God and love one another, and that sin is an abuse of freedom given to us. All right, now, today is the feast of St. Leo the Great, and I thought it would be good uh, to have St. Leo, a doctor of the church, help us as we begin this lecture. So I found a quotation from one of his sermons on the ascension of our Lord. St. Leo says, For today, not only are we confirmed as possessors of paradise, but have also in Christ penetrated the heights of heaven and have gained still greater things through Christ's unspeakable grace than we had lost through the devil's malice. For us, whom our virulent enemy had driven out from the bliss of our first abode, the Son of God has made members of himself and placed at the right hand of the Father. What we find out is, particularly in Christ's ascension, that he goes to paradise, the paradise of heaven, that that paradise of heaven is much, 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 much greater than what we call the paradise of the Garden of Eden. So by God rescuing us in the Incarnation and lifting us up to the heights of heaven, we have something that far exceeds what Adam and Eve enjoyed in that first blessing before the original sin. Okay, so this is why uh, we, we come to the mystery of original sin as Christians uh, with the light of Christ, and that our destination from God's plan is the paradise of heaven. So I was asked to speak on original sin, and there's a scholastic distinction now that I think it is important to draw. It's very helpful, and I use the Latin here. So the talk is divided into two parts. The first part is... Peccatum originale originans. Okay, peccatum originale originans. So you see, that's original sin, and it's a present participle. Original sin originating. That means that this original sin is the act of Adam's personal sin. What did Adam do in the garden that was sinful? So that is the original, that is the first personal sin. And then after we consider Adam's personal sin, we'll think about that effect upon the human race, upon nature. So if you turn to the back side, peccatum originale originatum. So original sin, and then it's the perfect passive participle, having been originated. So the original sin having been originated, and that's the state of deprivation found in fallen human nature. So it's not a personal sin, it's a lack, a deprivation of what was in Adam before the original sin that the entire human race is affected by. All right? So that is the fundamental distinction. Uh, we will have these two parts, and then there will be time for questions and answers. All right?
Now, I know on the brochures for this evening's talk it said, bring your Bible. So for those of you who did bring your Bible, uh, you may turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. Okay, it's a long reading. It's the whole chapter, the third chapter of Genesis. But I think it's important for us to hear this and then to think about the details of this narrative and the Catholic Church's teaching about this first sin. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the animals that the Lord God had made. The serpent asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like gods who know what is good and what is bad. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eyes, and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. When they heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God then called to the man and asked him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? You have eaten then from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat. The man replied, the woman whom you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and so I ate it. The Lord God then asked the woman, Why did you do such a thing? The woman answered, The serpent tricked me into it, so I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you shall be banned from all the animals and from all the wild creatures. On your belly shall you crawl, and dirt shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your head, while you strike at his heel. To the woman he said, I will intensify the pangs of your childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Yet your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall be your master. To the man he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat, cursed be the ground because of you. In toil shall you eat its yield all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you, as you eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you get bread to eat, until you return to the ground from which you were taken. For you are dirt, and to dirt you shall return. The man called his wife Eve, because she became the mother of all the living. For the man and his wife, the Lord God, made leather garments with which he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing what is good and what is bad. Therefore he must not be allowed to put out his hand to take fruit from the tree of life also, and thus eat of it and live forever. The Lord God therefore banished him from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had been taken. When he expelled the man, he settled him east of the garden of Eden, and he stationed the cherubim and the fire revolving sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, in order for us to appreciate this fall, of course we need to know what happened earlier in Genesis about God's creation of Adam 
and Eve. And in the theological distinction, it's very important to distinguish nature and grace. Okay, so nature is God's creation. Grace is that which heals and elevates rational creation. Uh, squirrels don't get grace. Clouds don't get grace. Human beings are capable of God. So God gives first creation, and then very generously, he gives grace, so that we may be in communion with him, that we may know him and love him. So before you get to chapter 3, you can think about how Adam and Eve are there, they are made, and it's not simply a matter of creation, but they're created in a state that's traditionally called original justice. It's an original holiness. It's not just that they were created, but that they were created in a special state of grace. Now, some people sometimes get confused about this word paradise, and they think that they were in heaven. Okay, this is not uh, what is revealed. This form of paradise is an earthly paradise where they have special communion with God. You know, so you have the image of God walking with them in the breezy time of the day. Uh, that we see the dignity of Adam in terms of naming creatures. We see a special relationship between Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve live together in love. All right? It's a state of love. It's a state of special graces. So if we look at Catechism 374. The first man was not only created good, but was also established in friendship with his creator and in harmony with himself and with the creation around him in a state that would be surpassed only by the glory of the new creation in Christ. And then, in 376, by the radiance of this grace, all dimensions of man's life were confirmed. As long as he remained in the divine intimacy, man would not have to suffer or die. The inner harmony of the human person, the harmony between man and woman, and finally the harmony between the first couple in all creation, comprise the state called original justice. So this justice is a righteousness that orders things well. It orders things within Adam, within Eve, between one another, between couple and creation. Why? Because all of them are ordered to God. In terms of the language of chapter 3, the Catechism in 390 speaks of this as figurative language. The account of the fall in Genesis 3 uses figurative language but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human history is marked by the original fault committed by our first parents. Now, in terms of this uh, language then, we'll focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes people wonder, why is it that tree that's forbidden? Why? You know, doesn't God want us to be smart? Does he want us to be dumb? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, in a sense, the tree which would tempt us to decide what is good and what is evil. To decide it. In a sense, to taste both what is good and taste what is evil and decide for ourselves. That's the tree, the one tree that's forbidden, that we don't decide what is good. We don't decide what is evil. 
And so the Catechism says, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolically invokes the insurmountable limits that man, being a creature, must freely recognize and respect with trust. Man is dependent on his creator and subject to the laws of creation and to the moral norms that govern the use of freedom. The devil had already fallen. So this is another issue. St. Thomas teaches about how the angels were created in a special sort of grace, and then they were able to decide whether they were to be for God or against God. The devils, the demons, decided against God. And so here in the garden, we see the presence of the serpent. The serpent symbolizes the devil, the fallen angel. And he decides to tempt, to tempt. He says, Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? The woman answered the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It is only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it lest you die. All right. Already, with the presence of the devil, something has gone wrong. Why? Because Eve does not exactly say what the Lord God had forbidden. The Lord God, this is in chapter 2, verse, verses 16 and 17, The Lord God gave man this order, You are free to eat from any of the trees of the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and bad. From that tree you shall not eat. The moment you eat from it, you are surely doomed to die. He didn't say anything about touching. Eve says, You shall not eat it or even touch it, lest you die. Now, before you think, Oh, well, it's Eve's fault. Eve had not yet been created. In terms of the verses from chapter 2, maybe Adam got it wrong and told Eve wrong. But you notice that they made the commandment of God stricter. To make God's commandment stricter is an offense against God. Now, the serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. No, God knows well that the moment you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know what is good and what is bad. Why did God make us? To know, love, and serve him in this world, be happy with him forever and the next. Thank you. All right. God made us for happiness. Happiness with him. People for ages have talked about this as deification or divinization, as in 2 Peter chapter 1, to be partakers of the divine nature. We're called to be like God. That's our very purpose. To be like God. God made us to his image and he gave us the graces and he wants us in his glory so that we may reign with him forever. In Catechism 398, we see a teaching of the difference here. In that sin, man preferred himself to God and by that very act scorned him. He chose himself over and against God, against the requirement of his creaturely status and therefore against his own good. Constituted in a state of holiness, man was destined to be fully divinized by God in glory. Seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God, but without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. A quotation from St. Maximus the Confessor. We're meant to be like God, but in a sense, we're to be like God as a gift that God freely and generously gives to us to be given as a gift from God and received with thanksgiving. Our life is to be a life of thanksgiving. Thank you for the gift. What do Adam and Eve do? They snatch. 
So rather than receiving as a gift, they take, they grasp. They want it on their terms. This is what the devil has convinced them of it. Once they do this, it's not a matter of something arbitrary, but it's a matter of seeing that Adam and Eve no longer want to respect God as God, and that God wants them to be like him. They want to take it. They take it on their own terms. And so, after they have sinned, they realize that they shouldn't be in the presence of God. So when God comes, they hide. The Lord God then called to the man and asked him, Where are you? It's not that God is ignorant, but he wants us to think, when we've sinned, where are we? So when God says, where are you? It's a matter of, for us to think, where have we put ourselves? It's not a matter of God's ignorance, but of God asking a question so that we may answer. We may answer for ourselves. And God wants them to repent. St. Ephraim the Syrian, a great 4th century doctor of the church, looks at this and says, oh, they have so many opportunities to repent. But what do they do? They blame. It's all a series of blames. Then God asked, Who told you that you were naked? You have eaten then from the tree which I had forbidden you eat. The man replied, The woman whom you put here with me. Okay, God is to be blamed. You put this woman here with me. She gave me fruit from the tree, and so I ate it. Lord God then asked the woman, Why did you do such a thing? The woman, The serpent tricked me into it, so I ate it. Blame, blame, blame. St. Ephraim says, oh, if they could just say, sorry, have mercy. Instead, they blame. Catechism 400. What we see now is how there are disastrous effects. The harmony in which they found themselves, thanks to original justice, is now destroyed. The control of the soul's spiritual faculties of the body is shattered. The union of man and woman becomes subject to tension. Their relations henceforth marked by lust and domination. Harmony with creation is broken. Visible creation has become alien and hostile to man. Because of man, creation is now subject to its bondage to decay. Finally, the consequence explicitly foretold for this disobedience will come true. Man will return to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Death makes its entrance into human history. The Book of Wisdom says God did not make death. God did not intend for us to die. We don't know exactly how this would happen in terms of transitioning on to the paradise of heaven, but God did not intend us to die. Death is a result of that original sin, and then even in the midst of the punishment, though, God points out the grace that is to be offered. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, so it's Latin for the first gospel, the first good news. Genesis chapter 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. Ultimately, it is the son of the Virgin Mary, our Lord Jesus Christ, that will defeat the serpent. And because of that Christ came due to the original sin, because Christ came and he suffered on a tree, that he was obedient unto death, whereas Adam and Eve were disobedient. 
at a tree, that we can see how our restoration is even greater than what was there as the original justice or original holiness. On the Easter Vigil, the Church proclaims the 4th century prayer, the Exalted. In this great preaching and prayer, O Felix culpa, quae talem actantam merit habere redemptorum. O happy fault, which merited for us to have so great and such a redeemer. The happy fault. Happy fault. It was a fault, but God, in a sense, even in the midst of our, of our fault, made it happy for us. Alright, so that is the original sin as the act, that first personal sin. I want us now to think of the effect of that on the human race. So it's the peccatum originale originatum. And for that, if you have your Bible, open to Romans 5, Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as through one person sin entered the world, and through sin death, and thus death came to all, inasmuch as all sin. For up to the time of the law, sin was in the world, though sin is not accounted when there is no law. The death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin after the trespass of Adam, who is the type of the one who was to come. But the gift is not like the transgression. For if by that one person's transgression the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gracious gift of the one person, Jesus Christ, overflow for the many? And the gift is not like the result of the one person's sinning. For after one sin there was the judgment that brought condemnation, but the gift, after many transgressions, brought acquittal. For if by the transgression of one person death came to reign through that one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of justification come to reign in life through the one person, Jesus Christ? In conclusion, just as through one transgression condemnation came upon all, so through one righteous act acquittal and life came to all. For just as through the disobedience of one person the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. The law entered in so that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace overflowed all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through justification for eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right, Catechism 403. Following St. Paul, particularly in the letter to the Romans, the Church has always taught that the overwhelming misery which oppressed men in their inclination toward evil and death cannot be understood apart from their connection with Adam's sin and the fact that he has transmitted to us a sin with which we are all born afflicted, a sin which is the death of the soul. Because of the certainty of faith, the Church baptizes for their mission of sin even tiny infants who have not committed personal sin. Did you do anything as a matter of your personal guilt? No. Okay, original sin is what is deprived, what is lacking. And without that special grace, uh, the nature tends to fall apart. Uh, and this is what's explained in Catechism 405. Although it is proper to each individual, original sin does not have the character of a personal fault in any of Adam's descendants. It is a deprivation of original holiness and justice. But human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded in the natural powers proper to it subject to ignorance, suffering, and the dominion of death, and inclined to sin, an inclination to evil that is called concupiscence. Baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin and turns a man back toward God. But the consequences for nature, weakened and inclined to evil, persist in man and summon him to spiritual battle. Notice that phrase, 
But human nature has not been totally corrupted. In the Protestant Reformation, there were some Protestant theologians who talked about total depravity. So that the human being cannot know anything about God. The Catholic Church resisted total depravity. We are wounded. We are sick. But even in our sickness, in being wounded, we can know something about God. There is something about, say, the natural virtues. Also, there was a a division in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century about the meaning of concupiscence. So I have from 2515 in the Catechism. This is the Catholic teaching of concupiscence. Etymologically, concupiscence can refer to any intense form of human desire. Christian theology has given it a particular meaning, the movement of the sensitive appetite contrary to the operation of the human reason. The Apostle St. Paul identifies it with the rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. Concupiscence stems from the disobedience of the first sin. It unsettles man's moral faculties, and without being in itself an offense, inclines man to commit sins. Concupiscence, then, is not, strictly speaking, the same as sin, without being in itself an offense. It inclines us to sin. It's a desire, a disordered desire. Now, when we look at Catechism 407, we can see, then, that with original sin, there's no longer that special grace, and that there is this concupiscence that arises. The doctrine of original sin, closely connected with that of redemption by Christ, provides lucid discernment of man's situation and activity in the world. By our first parent's sin, the devil has acquired a certain domination over man, even though man remains free. Original sin entails captivity under the power of him who thenceforth had the power of death, that is, the devil. Ignorance of the fact that man has a wounded nature inclined to evil gives rise to serious errors in the areas of education, politics, social actions, and morals. Now, we're concerned about Catholic culture, okay? This is very important to understand uh, the world and how Catholics bring a sort of understanding of culture that the world doesn't have. Sometimes the world thinks, oh, all you need is more education. All you need is more money. All you need is more power. Then everything will be a paradise. Well, that's not this world. Sometimes, uh, in terms of sex education, simply the idea, oh, if children know more and more and more, then everything will be just fine. No, that's not how it works. Okay, education is good. You know, money could be used for good things. Power, well, if it's used well. You see how there's just something wrong about human nature. And what we need is grace. We need grace from God. The one who made us is the one who saves us. We cannot save ourselves. St. Augustine, uh, that doctor of the church who died in 430, who did so much work concerning original sin against the heresy of the Pelagians, knew that he couldn't save himself. He needed the grace of God. Now, we find this grace first off in baptism. So look at Catechism 1263. By baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishments for sin. In those who have been reborn, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God. Neither Adam's sin, nor personal sin, nor the consequences of sin, the gravest of which is separation from God. 
So God ministers his healing grace through the sacraments of the church. And that first sacrament is baptism. That all sins, original sin and personal sins, okay? Infants don't have personal sins. But they still have original sin. Okay, that deprivation coming into the world. Now, Catechism 1264. Yet certain temporal consequences of sin remain in the baptized, such as suffering, illness, death, and such frailties inherent in life as weaknesses of character and so on, as well as an inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence, or metaphorically, the tender for sin. Since concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with, it cannot harm those who do not consent, but manfully resist it by the grace of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought, well, if we have grace, why do we still suffer from original sin? St. Thomas asks this question, and he gives an answer in his great Summa of Theology, question 69, article 3. So why do the baptized suffer? He gives three answers. One, incorporation into Jesus Christ. Christ came into this world with the absolute fullness of grace. You know, that he had capital grace, what St. Thomas says. He has the grace of being the head of the church. Well, he still suffered. In his body, he suffered. Even in his soul, he suffered. Sorrowing, sadness. What the baptized do is then, from this grace, that we are incorporated into Christ. The second answer is the spiritual fight. And the Council of Trent mentioned something about the spiritual fight. That by having concupiscence, by still having the sufferings of the world, and the sufferings are much more than bad traffic, right? <laughs> much, much more than bad traffic, we're able to put up a fight. Uh, this is a part of our dignity, to fight. The devil wants you to give up. Give up! Give up! Give up. No. God gives us the grace to fight. And then the third one is that we're fighting for eternity. So that, uh, in terms of the suffering after baptism, that there's the goal of heaven. This world isn't paradise. And so you can think about hypothetically that if you didn't have any sufferings, well, maybe you would want to enjoy this world in a way where you forget about God. God wants us to live forever, forever with him in heaven. And so this is the time of preparation, so that our goal is beyond this earth. Finally, because of the, of the grace of Christ, we can think about Our Lady, conceived without sin. And so in 1854, Pope Pius IX defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Why did this happen? It was because of God's initiative and through the merits of Jesus Christ. Now some might think, well, don't you have your history backwards? Mary was the mother of Jesus. How, from the first moment of her conception, could she have grace? Actually, that was not the problem. It's a problem for many of us today, but the long history of Christian tradition has always said all grace is the grace of Jesus Christ, in one way or another. Looking at the saints of the Old Testament, 
Well, they share in the grace of Christ. What the church saw is that Mary is the finest expression of God's creation, of God's creative power, in terms of our human nature, so that she is most conformed to her Son. And it's not a matter of any merit, it's sheer grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus protecting his mother from the first moment of her life. All right, now we have time for questions and answers, uh, so some discussion. There are a lot of controversial issues here, both in terms of the peccatum originale originans and the peccatum originale originatum. Father, we're going to take just a short oh. break, if that's okay with oh, you. Oh, that's fine. Okay, we'll take our normal short break, and thank you very much, Father, okay. for an excellent presentation. Okay. All right, okay. Father, I have a Jewish friend who we have discussions from time to time. And he said, if God makes everything, then God must have made evil. How do I answer that? Great. All right, thank you. So this gets back to who God is and what God has done. In Genesis chapter 1, repeatedly we see that what God made, he saw that was good. And then in chapter 1, verse 31, God looked at everything he had made, and he found it very good. Everything God made is good. Why? Because it reflects something of who God is. God is the highest good. St. Augustine, I told you that St. Augustine especially articulated the teaching about original sin against Pelagianism. Well, he also had in mind the Manichees. The Manichees thought that there was both good and evil, as if they were two principles, and God was responsible for them both. So for, for the Manichees, they just thought that everything that was physical was basically bad. What Augustine said against them is that evil is a disorder within the things that are good. And to be able to appreciate this is that God made us and made the angels good, and he gave us then freedom. Evil is an abuse of our freedom, which is good. So it's because of a creaturely abuse, the angels who fell and humans, that then we have this evil. And then what St. Augustine does is he distinguishes evil, both in terms of the evil that is like a physical evil, and then the evil that's a, that's a moral evil. Okay, physical evil in terms of that bad things happen, and moral evil is in terms of sin. So what I want to emphasize is that God is not responsible for evil. Evil creatures are. And to appreciate, then, God's sheer infinite goodness and how God wants us to experience his infinite goodness. Father, I have a, uh, an email that came in from Laredo, Texas, from Jose, who asked, basically, how would you suggest that he explain original sin to a non-believer? Okay, to a non-believer. Oh, all right. This is where you have to think about different steps in arguments. One could be to open up with the idea, do you have some idea that something's wrong? Something's wrong in the world? Do you feel that there's something bad? Well, as Christians, we can have a greater appreciation of this because we know that we're meant for the happiness of heaven and that Jesus Christ rescues us. 
Some say that original sin is a teaching that uh, everybody could believe in, in, in one sense or another. Because everybody seems to do wrong things, and that everybody falls apart. Without that special grace at the beginning, we kind of fall apart. And so, for him to reflect upon this, and then to see the Christian vision, uh, how this could lead him to understand our need for God's grace, and how God does give us the grace, and how our goal then is higher than anything that we can imagine upon this earth. Father, I'm wondering, how can we promote a healthy sense of original sin when it seems like most Catholics have a general feel-good, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, okay, without seeming like a real big downer or extreme Calvinist? Okay. Well, <laughs> this idea of I'm okay, you're okay, is generally not said to people on the deathbed. Really. It's generally uh, not said to people when they are being hurt. You know, it's really insulting. If somebody is hurting you, and somebody says, oh, you're okay. And it's like, no, I'm not okay. I'm really not okay. This is not okay. For people to get out of their fantasy and look at how people are being hurt, more and more people see how there's a victimization. Original sin can help us understand something of the victimization that occurs. I think fewer people are saying that everything is okay, because more and more people are getting hurt. I'm sorry to be doing a couple of the emails, but I think it's, it's well worth it to hear from where people are coming from. This is from Harold in Maryland, and I've got to talk to Harold for a second. Harold, Maryland's not that far away. You've got to come. You just drive on out. The wine tastes good. The cookies are homemade. The cookies are great, aren't they? Thank you very much. Thank you for the cookies. Okay. Harold asks, since our first parents were not inclined to sin, why did they want to disobey God? Okay. It's a great question. I don't know. All right. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a fair answer. Okay. No, no. All right, because on one hand, you would think, oh, they had everything. They had everything. Why would they want the one thing that they're not supposed to have, the, the fruit from the knowledge of good and evil? Why? Even though there was not the concupiscence, they still had a freedom uh, there's a saying, a small error at the beginning will lead to huge errors uh, later on. They had the freedom, they had all these good things, but they blew it. This is why, like in terms of the mystery of iniquity, you can't know why people do things wrong, in terms of the fullness of the why. Iniquity is a mystery. We come to know it more in terms of the mystery of goodness, but really there's a senselessness. There's a senselessness to every sin. Every sin is against right reason. In his freedom, Adam, uh, even though he wasn't particularly inclined to sin, uh, curiosity, as St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, is the beginning of all sin. Okay? It's the first step down the ladder of pride. Curiosity. curiosity that brought me here tonight. Now, okay, here... Okay, uh, to make a distinction, okay, Dominicans love to make distinctions. Uh, 
St. Thomas distinguishes curiosity from studiosity. Okay? Curiositas and studiositas. Study is a zeal to want to know rightly. Curiosity is, I wonder what's happening over here. It's not necessarily a, you know, like the big sin, it's just kind of being diverted. Um, obviously God knew that Adam and Eve were going to do this because he knows everything. Yep. Why did he go through all that? I mean, if he already knew what was going right. to happen. Yeah. God is good. And then to think about how God would not let any evil to occur if he were not more powerful and better than whatever that was. God brings good even out of evil. This is what St. Augustine says, and then St. Thomas repeats him. God created everything out of nothing. Well, God is so powerful now that he creates goodness out of an evil situation. So what we have is better than what Adam and Eve enjoyed before the fall. That the gates of heaven are open in the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That in the incarnation, now God is united to a human nature uh, so that we are called to enter into God's glory. So it all goes back to Jesus. And then this is why uh, the saints in heaven praise God ceaselessly. You know, to think about God's goodness, uh, God's wonder, God's beauty, and to be able to have uh, the everlasting Alleluia. You know, at every turn we mess things up, but that God is still good and he has a plan. So now, now is the time to accept his grace and to follow the plan of God. I have a last question for you coming from Daniel from Texas City, Texas. He has a very good question about, I'll paraphrase it, if it's necessary to uh, be in the state of sanctifying grace to go to heaven, uh, what happens to children that are not baptized? Right. Like aborted children and so forth. This yes. is a big issue. Blessed John Paul speaks of this in Evangelium Vitae. I believe the, the catechism also suggests this and that it goes back to the mercy of God. So we don't know, uh, but what we do is that we trust in God's mercy. There's a saying that's found in the Catechism, uh, God who, who binds salvation to the sacraments is himself not bound. We trust in God's mercy and allow God's goodness to do what God is good to do. All right? There are various theological opinions about this. The International Theological Commission a few years ago had a document on limbo. Uh, various theologians have debates. But ultimately, we should think about the mercy of God and trust in God's mercy. All right. So uh, if, if it's all right with you, I, I will stay here for further questions and answers. Why don't we pray a glory be, and then I'll give you a blessing. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. May the peace and blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Father. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 
635-735-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.